0: It's Jimmy Ogunshala in for Jill this January first, twenty twenty one, and it's January first. While we are all while we're all taking to talk and unpacking of you know the, the year that was twenty twenty, you know some parents. Teachers, educators are already thinking ahead about what's going to happen on Monday, about should the Ministry of Education, should BC be extending the winter holidays in order to control and contain the spread of the COVID-19. Yes, there is a vaccine and we're having more, um, we're having the vaccines coming. Moderna is there, Pfizer is there, the AstraZeneca is on its way, the Johnson & Johnson is there. But the question still remains, should kids? And that seems to be the present question on the mind of many parents right now. And very soon we'll be speaking with um an education columnist about that, but well, before that, let's take a, you know, a quick listen to what Aaron McArthur has to say about this growing anxiety amongst parents and teachers.
1: We remain concerned about the situation in BC schools. And in fact, we're more concerned now with the new variant of COVID that we know is in BC. While the fear from teachers and parents has been present from the start of the school year, the emergence of the COVID variant has people wondering if a delay isn't warranted. The UK has pushed back the start of classes. B.C. in a much different stage of the pandemic, and there are no plans to alter course.
2: We pulled together a school task force to learn from what we have been through in the last few weeks. People are preparing to make sure that we can go back to school safely.
1: According to government data, actual transmission inside classrooms remains low. But the liberal education critic says she's fielding calls from concerned parents and teachers, asking for at least more options to stay safe. As of right now, kids will be back in the classroom January 4th. Aaron MacArthur, Global News
0: all right so that's that's what's that's what is hot right now that's what people are thinking parents thinking teachers are thinking on the flip side of this there are some people who believe you know BC hasn't really had many cases of you know outbreak in schools and spreads and but right from the beginning of the school year in September we've had educators and um Um, education activist and advocate, sorry, talking about how we could make our schools safer for kids. And science has shown the kids could, you know, could spread this disease, transmit it as much as adults do. But then the question is, should we be opening schools on Monday? You know, that's about three or four days time. Should we allow kids go back to school or should we just extend it by a to bit like let's just take it back a little bit more, push it back and see what's gonna happen. Um joining us to discuss this is Patty Backers, um an education columnist with Georgia Street. Hi, Party. Uh, hello, happy new year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for taking time out of your New Year's Day to join us to talk about this pressing thing. I'm a mom, I've got two lovely kids, and it's a question, you know, it's something that's been on my mind. And it's not just now, it's been from the beginning of the school year in September, where people were talking about returning to school safely and pushing back on resumption. And should we allow kids to go back to school come January 4th?
3: Well, it's it's a really tough, tough question. And you know, and a complicated one. And I, I understand. I mean, I I tune into every briefing from the uh, provincial health officer and and education minister. They've been pretty consistent that they believe schools are safe given the protocols that are in place, and that transmission is very rare in schools or relatively rare. Um, having having said that, you know, I have to say, I'll be honest, I would be very nervous going and working in a school come Monday, particularly in the Fraser Health region, the Surrey School District, Vancouver Health region, northern health areas where we know there is a fairly, you know, higher rates of infection out in the community, which is going to come into the schools. So I incredibly uh empathetic with with particularly employees teachers support workers who really don't have a choice i mean parents have some choice they can keep their kids home it's not a, a perfect solution by any means but um i very sympathetic we you know we've just been through a, a winter holiday where we haven't been with our own families in many cases i celebrated christmas on facetime with my grown children because of the health orders that said it wasn't safe to even have our own family members come to our homes if we don't normally live together. And then to suggest that it's fine and it's safe to be in a classroom of 30 people not wearing masks in many cases, doesn't really add up to me. So I think, you know, we've heard calls from the BC Teachers Federation. They've been advocating steadily through this for improvements to school safety procedures. And I think, What they're asking for is reasonable, and I think it's important. And I would be more confident if there were better measures in place, including mask mandates, uh, lower class sizes, so there's not so many people in a confined space for such lengthy periods. I've never, through this pandemic, spent hours in a room with, you know, more than just a couple of other people. So I understand the nervousness, and I don't think there's enough being done to protect uh, students and staff in
0: schools. So when we, I will tell you, my kids have been coming to me, lobbying me to return to school. And (laughs) they have been, you know, this is a conversation we still had last night. Like, so mommy, would you allow us go back January 4th? And I'm like, okay, depending on what happens, I am a parent who opted for the option four. Right. In mm-hmm. in, the in the Vancouver school district, we have the option that's for the where, remote learning. Exactly. Yeah. But where yeah. the kids are still doing things with their teachers at school. And, you know, that's one option that it, that is supposed to end in January. But of course, it's I, I understand it's been pushed back a little bit more for, you know, parents who are still not ready to get their kids integrated back into the school system. But shouldn't we be given parents? options i mean more options in terms of how to get kids back to school amid this pandemic at least for this you know this school year at least you know that kind of flexibility absolutely i you know there's
3: no one size fits all solution i know many parents are very Uh, Much looking forward to their kids going back to school because they have to work themselves. And it's very difficult for some families to have their kids at home and and they're not in a position to be able to support them in the remote learning. I understand with that option that you're doing, you don't get a lot of support from the school. It's really on the parents to support their kids' learning to, to an extent. And that's not a fair ask for some families. But I do think for those who can do that and prefer to do that, it's a great option um very few school districts are offering that i think vancouver has been probably one of the leaders and i think surrey is doing some things as well but not all school districts are and the reality is the way schools are funded they don't have a lot of flexibility in how they allocate staffing and how they uh staff their classrooms and also support uh remote learners and it's it's not sustainable to expect teachers to be doing both of those things at once I think, um, you know, had we invested more into this and and, uh, we could have had more flexibility, as it is, there is a shortage of teachers even. It's difficult to even have enough substitute teachers. So it's a real challenge at this point. I think, you know, had we gone back to last summer, I was urging um, the provincial government last spring when the pandemic was kind of a new thing to start really planning and so for more flexibility, uh, larger learning spaces, you know, so we didn't have poorly ventilated, crowded classrooms and things. And really none of that was done. There were some real missed opportunities. And here we are now in the start of 2021 with very few options. And I think that, that's you know, that's on the provincial government. Um, I think the public health officer, Dr. Henry, is probably doing the best she can. I, I absolutely think schools need to be open for many students. They're a lifeline, they're critically important in many ways, uh, but I don't think government has done enough to make that safe. And I also think there are many who work in the school system who have very valid concerns about their own health or members of their family who have compromised immune systems and other risk factors that they should have some flexibility as well to be able to teach remotely, in my opinion, and, and that hasn't been offered so you know that's causing i think just a, an immense level of stress and unnecessary burnout amongst those who work in the system and and for families to make very difficult choices particularly families with uh, kids with health issues that have risk factors or other family members that you know are having to make these tough choices and with not great options and not enough support that goes with those options
0: it's a, it's a very it's a very tough spot to be in as a parent, as a teacher, as a support worker at school because if we are looking at mandating mask for kids. We all know how kids will always be kids. I can imagine my son, I remember him at school when he was in kindergarten and a friend came in and forgot his lunch and my son gave out his entire lunch to this friend. I can imagine him switching a mask with a friend because that person's mask looks cooler, right? You know, these are things that kids will do and it's just about how do we get them back to school safer how do we get parents to feel more confident how do we ease this anxiety how do we help ourselves to kind of understand where we are and just know that we're in this for a short time and affect all of this thank you so much party for taking time out of your january first to be with us on the show today i really appreciate it
3: my pleasure all the best to you and good luck with the back to
0: school thank you very much (laughs) Welcome back to The Jill Bennett Show. My name is Jimmy Ogunshala, in for Jill, this beautiful January 1st, 2021. Yep, it's the 1st of January. And, you know, like most people, I'm not very different. Despite where you've lived, who you are, you know, the first thing that you think about at the beginning of a new year is, how do I plan my finances? How do I make better and informed Financial decision this year. You look at your credit card debt, is there? You're paying mortgage, you look at your can, can notes, you're paying insurance on this, you have your bills, and monthly, you know, it's one thing I do. And I realized that it's not like this salary is elastic and it keeps expanding to meet up with my demands. But, you know, I tend to every month and put pen to paper, all of these bills adding up. How do you do this? How do I make sure that I'm having something? to save for the raining day. You know that saying, right? It's always good to put something aside. But it's always, in most cases, overwhelming for people when you talk about that big financial goal. That's what we're discussing with our next guest. Her name is Sophie Solcedo. She's the Wealth Advisor and Sustainable Wealth Management Credential Securities at City. Hi, Sophie. Happy How 2021 you to you. Hi, Jimmy. Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for taking time out of your New Year's Day to join us. So, um, Sophie, I was just telling my story, sharing my experience with when we say we want to we all have these huge goals, right? Oh, is it that I want to buy a car? But you still also mm-hmm. want to look good. You want to wear something, you know. Last year didn't even make it easy on so many people, so many Canadians. People lost their jobs. You have, you're, you're, you know, you, you're backed up on your house rent. You're backed up on some other bills. But it's a new year. It's another opportunity to reset. How do we even yeah. start?
4: Yeah. And I think it's a great time to sort of sit down and spend some time getting started for your new year. And first step is always to focus on that goal. And we all need motivation usually because we have to make some choices here between needs and wants. If we do want to get ahead with our money and move forward with paying down bills and saving for all the things we want. So, you know, choose your motivation. And I think the first step, I think you mentioned it just just prior to our, our discussing, this is organizing yourself. So, it's good to sit down, pen to paper or on your computer, pulling up where your accounts are, where, what is your income after taxes, and looking for ways to save money. And one really important one is just looking through your bank statement. I'm sometimes so surprised because, of course, I help clients all the time. And I'm looking at other clients' bank statements from other banks or credit unions and looking at the fees people pay sometimes. I kind of stop and say, is there not a cheaper package you can find to maybe save a bit more money? And So starting off with that is a really great way, or maybe consolidating accounts, so bringing accounts together, so maybe just one account instead of multiple fees there is
0: a great way. Okay, you touched on something very important. I sit down every month and I look at the bank charges, and I have been following several Twitter threads on this about, you know, Canadians talking about the the banking, um, the charges you pay if you're doing a certain amount. This bank says four ninety five, or the other one says fourteen ninety five for unlimited. But these mm-hmm. things add up. They definitely add up. I think
4: that's probably one of the things that, that stops people from really paying pay, paying attention and taking notice. They might think, oh, a dollar, two dollars, at the most, a three dollar charge for this ATM, which well, that's okay. It doesn't add up. But I am such a believer, and I'm not joking, that every dollar, every cent counts. I did a lot of things with a very minimal income when I came out of university and managed to save. And it was just because it was a maybe more of a natural thing for me, but I also missed out on things. And I, I didn't spend or buy as many things as maybe I saw other people doing. So I know that just stopping and that every dollar will count And if you're going to get your drink. Uh, Maybe you just order a more plain drink without the syrups that are costing you more money. And every
0: week, if you save those dollars, you will put it towards something important and it will have a a real impact. You just need to be diligent. So um, for this couple of minutes we have left in this part of the conversation, let's take a look at 2020. It was a year for many people you know, financially, people who lost their jobs, people had to depend on the government money that came, and some mm-hmm. people are backlogged in terms of rent, some having to deal with credit card debt. Just a bigger picture, you're looking at someone who lost their job, struggling to meet up with all their financial obligations, right? How do you start in a new year?
4: Yeah, so I know Van City was very helpful about coming up with a no interest visa and business pivot loans, and and so I think everybody's got to start to think of if they're struggling and trying to get ahead, thinking of themselves as having their own human capital. So how am I? Can I find a good job? If I'm in a job, can I get more hours? Are there courses I can take to get ahead? Really, we all need to try to improve ourselves to try to get to try to get ahead to try to increase that income so we can have some extra disposable income to pay those bills down and focus. One good piece of news after a difficult year such as twenty twenty was that the Canadian debt ratio actually did go down. So with government stimulus money coming out, Canadians did did lower how much they owed in debt overall across the country. So some people do have some increased savings on hand, which is great news, especially if we continue to have a difficult year through part of 2021. So, again, just just trying to improve yourself, looking for ways to save money. And that's why I say every penny counts, whether you're struggling or, or not, just looking to save that money to pay down your debt or get ahead for savings for some, something bigger for yourself. It can, it can help everybody.
0: My name is Jimmy Ogunshola. in 4 Jill. And thanks for being a part of my January 1st, 2021. And we still have Sophie Salcido on the line. We're looking at financial literacy in 2021. I think it's so, so important. Not with what we've all been through in 2020. And hey, we all made it out good. So we're looking forward to a brighter year where we can do more things. And, you know, Sophie, before we... Went on that break, uh, I was asking you about something you call the power of a pause. Let's talk about that.
4: Yeah, so I think that's something um, really good for people to think about and maybe implement in their plan daily. So power of a pause in terms of spending our money and making purchases. It's just about before you make that final purchase or walk up to the till and you're looking at something, just to ask yourself one more time, do you really, really need this item? And just changing your mind to just ask yourself that question can actually in effect slightly reduce your desire to buy something because you're taking a step back for one minute just to say, do I need that piece of clothing have I, or should I buy something better quality that will last me more so I don't need three? I can have one item or I maybe just don't need that other item sitting on my shelf. So just pausing and just asking yourself, do you really need that? And sometimes I've walked away fairly often before where I've seen something and I, I really think I want it. And I say, oh, I don't know, it costs this much money. Should, do I need it? I will walk away and I'll think, OK, if I'm still thinking about this a week later, maybe I actually do really want it and I might go back and buy it at that point.
0: And that's something that I do very well. I go into a store, I like something, I want to buy it, but I step away and I just, um, you know, at times I've picked it up, I've taken it to the till and I'm just like, you know what, I'm so sorry, just don't worry about this. And that, you know, those seconds in between allowed me to think critically about the fact that. Do I really need this? In most yeah. cases, do you know what the answer is? No. Because that time that I've stepped away, I'll realize maybe I have something very similar to this. Something that could do the same job of function of what I was about to purchase. So what I've just done is to save myself some bucks right there. So yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, and I I think that's something we really need to put into our habit this year so that it can help. And so let's talk about, now, this bank charges is something, are there some, you know, are there places or the financial institutions where you can really save less, sorry, where you pay less in terms of your transactions? I, as a student, I know that, you know, um, you're, you're not being charged the monthly mm-hmm. banking charges, but the moment you change that status, or you're no longer a student, they kick in. Yeah.
4: Yeah, that's right. And that's where a student should be thinking critically about that. It might not be because
0: a student at that stage
4: might be thinking about getting the next job and they're job hunting and they're searching. And so times like that and also aging and becoming. So at Vancity, as you reach age 55, we actually call you a gold member. So 55 is actually quite a lot younger than a lot of financial institutions. I know that. There's many that might not kick in until 65. That's 10 more years of charges you're paying to your institution where you might not have to be doing that. So you need to ask around, you need to make some phone calls, and something you should do in general just in terms of all your finances is maybe just talking to your friends or family, someone you trust, and just seeing, hey, what are you paying for charges or where are you banking? And, and we can really learn a lot from each other if you can find some trusted people to start having those conversations with.
0: So using the term saving could be vague and overwhelming. and At the end of the day, you could say to yourself, I'm not making enough to even put anything away, right? Is mm-hmm. there a better way to actually achieve that saving goal?
4: Yeah, definitely. And so what people should be doing, Jimmy and we we're all subject to it. Oh, I, I want to buy something. I want to buy that car. I'm, you know, I'm going to save for a car. But that isn't actually giving you a goal that you can hold yourself accountable to. So really flip it all around. Go through your finances and just say, I'm going to aim to save, let's say, $100 on my food bill a month. I'm really going to try to do that. Or, and even break it down per week and just start to compare your bills and see, am I saving that, that $35 a week that I said I would do? And when you've got something really clear, it's easier for you to do that, to achieve it.
0: So um, I have $100 I'm owing on my credit card. Should I save this $100 or should I pay my credit card?
4: That's always a great question. Um, I don't like credit card debt, especially if it's costing you around 20-something percent. That's not good for you. Um, It's good for the financial institution who's making that money from you, but you really should pay that down. But I also want to create the habit in you or anybody for saving. So quite often, I am a huge advocate of doing both because, in a sense, you're hedging your bets. People ask me all the time, should I put in an RSP? Or pay down my mortgage. And I'll say, why don't you do both? Why don't you put some RSPs in, get some money back, and put your refund onto your mortgage? And so it's the same thing with paying down the credit card debt. If you can't pay it all off, pay a huge chunk of it off. Take a few dollars in that you're saving and and get into the habit of saving it. And hopefully you can turn the corner and get the debt paid off and watch your savings grow
0: doing all of this, at times there's a tendency to feel like you're being too hard on yourself, right? You're not eating out, you're saving money, (laughs) you're doing all of this. How do we manage that balance, Um, right? To still treat yourself a little bit.
4: Yeah, Jimmy, I get it. I know what you're trying to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I've seen this. I've been in this business over 20 years and I've watched something transpiring, definitely. And we're we're keeping up a lot with the Joneses. Um, I have a 12-year-old daughter. She's been to most places in her life that I didn't go until I went with her when I was late 40s, (laughs) you know. three places I could name off the top of my head, I did not go to ever until I went with her. And that that can be common sometimes these days. And so I, I think it's values, it's priorities. Um, I always try to tell people it's not about what you see on people or the houses or what they drive. It's about you. It's about you being in control of your money and feeling good about your purchases. And we've just gone through covid So listen, I am advocating that if for me, it's a chocolate bar every week when I shop. Yes, I've been buying myself a chocolate bar. I used to stop and not buy it all the time, but sometimes I just keep buying it because it's COVID and it's tough out there. So if there's something that's going to help you mentally get through a very challenging time, find something that will work. It's not a bad habit. You're not creating debt over it. And if it's going out for dinner with your family once in a while and you're you're not saving that money, go ahead and do that every once in a while. But stick to the priorities and know that it's a treat and you're not doing it too often.
0: Thank you so much, Sophie, for this wonderful advice. And I know that you're on Twitter, but if someone just wants to, you know, very quickly, if someone wants to know more, Sophie, where can they find you?
4: Yeah, they can definitely go on to vancity.com and look up my name, Sophie Salcido, and you'll find a long list of all of our advisors who work throughout different branches in Van City. And it doesn't cost anything to come into advice. It's the same in most institutions. So please just go out there and get some help and some advice and people are here to help you.
0: If you've just tuned in, my name is Jimmy Ogunshola. I'm in for jail this Friday, 1st of January 2021. And hey, What better way to start the year than unpacking the year that was? And, of course, looking forward to a healthier and happy year, 2021. But, of course, 2020, how can we just get out of it without looking at a couple of things that happened? But I know the first thing your mind will go to will be the pandemic. Yes, the COVID-19 pandemic hit everyone really had, our finances. And that was what we discussed the last hour. We had Sophie Solcedo on the show talking about how to get it right in terms of finances. So if you missed any part of that or any part of today's show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. So let's talk about a topic very close to my heart. I'm a journalist. I'm sitting in this chair. My colleagues are out there every day working very hard to keep us informed. And then 2020, we saw a lot of hostility. We saw hostility and violence, you know, thrown and targeted at this group of people who are working very hard to keep us all on top of what's happening, right? How would you, how would you even describe that? Why would you do that? Well, that's what it is. And joining me to talk about this is one of Canada's most hardworking working journalists, Mercedes Stevenson. She is the Ottawa Bureau Chief of Global News and the host of the West Block. Happy New Year to you, Mercedes, and thank you for joining me. Happy New Year to you too,
2: Jimmy, and thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I saw the story. Let's get right to it. I was following this Twitter conversation you were having around the Christmas period and people saying that maybe you submitted questions to be vetted you know, by the prime minister's team. And we, we, we had a lot of this pushback and hostility towards journalists in 2020. As a journalist, how would you sum up your 2020? I would sum it up as as being very,
2: very busy, uh, busier than any other year that I've ever covered with just so many different things happening. Um, and unfortunately, the vast majority of them were, were not very good news. And I think that's been very hard for everyone. It's, it's hard for people at home. It's, it's hard for those of us working on it, although we are uh, frankly, very fortunate to be on the front lines of history and to have the opportunity to inform Canadians. But it's a very different environment to be working in as a journalist right now. And you saw that in the Twitter conversations you were referencing. Um, There was sort of two conspiracy theories circulating. The one is quite common, and we hear it a lot. And that's that people believe that we either receive our questions from the Prime Minister's office, or that we submit them to be vetted before we ask them. That is Categorically untrue for anyone who is wondering. Uh, In fact, we refuse to ever disclose the questions uh, or the nature of the questions that we will be asking. We have turned down interviews where people have tried to make that uh, a contingency saying that they need to know. Now, obviously, if we're having the health minister on, they probably have a pretty good sense we're going to ask about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, But we don't have any sort of questions or topics approved or vetted in advance uh, for precisely the reasons that people rely on us to get them honest answers for things not to be scripted. Uh, and in the case of the Prime Minister's interview, they had no idea what we were going to ask about in advance. Uh, I mean, they they can kind of guess a little bit with certain people. So, for example, I do a lot of defense and security stories, so the chances might be higher that I might ask that kind of a question. Uh, But there is there is no discussion of that. Uh, The other thing that was out there circulating, which was very interesting, was that people thought we'd somehow fake the interview with the Prime Minister on Christmas Day. Um, Now, this interview was taped 10 days in advance, which we publicly revealed, uh, because we don't hide that kind of information. And we also actually did news stories on the news of the day out of the interview. As you can imagine, neither the Prime Minister or I was around uh, work to do that interview on the 25th. It was a Christmas special, but people were comparing the weather on the two days, trying to say it was proof of a conspiracy, and it just struck me as so bizarre um, that this is the level we're at, that people think an interview would be faked. Um, It's not faked. It was done 10 days in advance. All the networks do their Christmas interviews in advance. We disclose the news that if he makes any, which the Prime Minister does always uh, on the day of that was in the Twitter feed it was on Global National Uh, but that's just sort of this strange world we're living in where conspiracy theories are becoming much more mainstream.
0: So under any circumstances or, or under what circumstances do we as journalists have to submit questions Mercedes? For me Never.
2: Um, I simply won't do an interview where I have to submit questions uh, in in any context. I just uh, refuse it because I think it is not a journalistically ethical practice. Um, if people will sometimes say, you know, what what sort of areas are we going to be talking about? Uh, and they're not somebody who professionally answers questions. You know, this is somebody who's lost a family member to COVID-19. It's not unusual for us to say, you know, would you be comfortable with talking about the last time you saw that family member or something like that? This is not an accountability interview. Uh, even then, we don't submit our questions in advance the only time you'll see us submit questions is when we're actually asking them. Either they're coming out of our mouth or sometimes we can't get a hold of somebody in person during COVID-19 or it's the bureaucracy and then we submit them in writing. But we're not submitting those questions asking if that's something they would be willing to answer. We're officially submitting them and saying we're asking you the following questions. So I think it's really important for people at home to know um, that doesn't happen. I think one of the areas that was problematic and created confusion around this is early in the pandemic the Prime Minister started having press conferences from his home in Rideau Cottage instead of in the National Press Theatre. And that meant the Prime Minister's office staff were the ones influencing and choosing who asked questions. They said that this was only to make sure that there was an equal number of French and English and a selection of outlets. We don't know what their criteria were and as a journalist, I don't like it any time political staff are the ones choosing who asks the questions. That said, they had no information about what those questions would be. It was not submitted by any journalist. I do not know of any journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery who would ever agree to that. Uh, And we chose to actually show up in person because if you showed up in person, it was first come, first served. So we'd just get there way in advance and stand in line to make sure we had the chance to ask our question. Uh, But I think that that helped to feed it, the fact that the Prime Minister's staff were choosing who asked some of the questions um, and that that really, you know, is an issue in terms of there's not as much transparency as when you have the press gallery and journalists selecting uh, who does it or simply doing it in order of time and and whoever shows up first. So as I said, our way of getting around that was to actually go in person because we knew we were going to get a question um, and that's certainly something that that made us feel more comfortable that we knew we were going to have an opportunity to, to ask that question and not be at risk of being passed over based on who political staff decided to select.
0: If you've just tuned in, my guest this hour is my colleague in Ottawa Bureau Chief of Global News and the host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. And we are unpacking 2020 in terms of the distrust and the lack of trust that people exhibited in the mainstream media. And, you know, we started this whole thing off with a Twitter thread that happened late last year about an interview she did with the prime minister. So, Mercedes, what would you think... Has given rise to this increase in hostility. I mean, you know, there are some journalists who have, you know, who people have gone physical with, you know, to the point of throwing them out of, you know, venues and telling them don't cover this, and you know, putting placards off in, the, in up in their faces. What do you think? Why? How did we get to this point? Well, that's a great question. Um, I don't think it's a point like that's happened quickly. I think it's.
2: It's built, and um there are some legitimate reasons why people are are angry with media. They feel that uh, important stories weren't told. And in in many cases that's been true, especially in the United States, Uh, the the rise of Donald Trump and what led to that, the anger in middle America that was really overlooked by the mainstream media, I think fed the feeling in a lot of people and that sort of seeped north of the border that the stories of everyday Canadians and everyday people simply weren't being told. that then started to get spun into conspiracy theories. And, and there's a variety of elements there. There's the anger, I think, which is legitimate uh, in some cases and is built up, but maybe is being mistranslated towards journalists. Uh, and in that case, uh, you know, they're they're looking for accountability and they're feeling the media isn't getting it. It's interesting, Jimmy, because sometimes we'll be asked, Um, on Twitter or something, why don't you ask the following question? And you'll say, well, I actually did ask that. I asked that question just yesterday. But part of what social media does is uses algorithms to filter so that people see the things that strike them the most emotionally and resonate with a bias. So You may have asked that question and people don't see that question being asked because they didn't watch the press conference. And so the feeling is, well, you're just sitting on these questions and and you're not asking them. And sometimes people uh, come up with not just sometimes often really good questions and questions that should be asked. And we have no problem asking those questions, but it's difficult sometimes to penetrate uh, the feelings around that and, and that it doesn't seem to resonate when you ask the question. And frankly, often you don't get an answer and people say, well, push for an answer. And that absolutely is our job. And we just have to keep asking that question and asking that question. But I think part of the frustration comes from the fact that politicians now, and this is not uh, any particular party, it's all of them, They don't answer your questions. They give you a talking point. So one of the tactics we'll use is to ask the question twice in a row, but guess what? After that, they move on to the next questioner. So you can only really do it in a one-on-one interview. And by about the third time, you kind of have to say, okay, well, I've asked you this question twice. You've not answered it. So let's move on to the next one to highlight the fact that you know they're not answering the question. Uh, But it's a different time in politics. In in the early 1990s, if you watch some of the old press conferences, you would see people actually answer the questions. And and that doesn't seem to happen now. Um, I think also there has been a very strong influence from information operations and propaganda. Uh, The Russians, in particular, are very good at this. I've actually seen it happen. We've tracked patterns that show tweets from St. Petersburg showing up in disrupting timelines, uh, trying to convince people that this is a conspiracy, the government is lying to you, the media is lying to you, because it tears apart the social fabric of our nation. And when authorities, in particular, don't answer questions accurately or are misleading, it really gives those trolls something to... Dig their, you know, fingers into and manipulate. So I think there's a few things: it's that we don't tend to get um, honest answers a lot of the time or clear answers from our politicians. That is then exploited by Russian trolls and others who want to destroy democracy. And then we have the fact that you know we have to be really tough as the media and ask these questions and just keep asking them. Over and over and over. And there's, there's, you know, I think a lot of journalists who are working very hard. That doesn't mean we can't always do uh, a better job. So I think those three factors have really kind of come together um, and that we as journalists have to work very hard to make sure that we are doing our jobs as best we can and that people are reassured. We really are bringing them the information that we have.
0: My name is Jimmy Ogunshala in Fajil, and thank you for sharing your January 1st with me. Um, on the line, I have um, my colleague, Mercedes Stevenson, and we're just taking a look at 2020 in journalism and 2021 in journalism. And Mercedes was, you know, right on the money, talking about some of the things, the remote and the immediate cost of what we saw as mistrust and distrust of journalists, right So now let's talk let's we don't have so much time in the segment but of course we can always discuss something very important, Mercedes, which is how do we regain that trust? Is this something that can be done? How do we do it as journalists you know how do we task ourselves to get this back? Hello. Oh, hello, Jimmy. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just listening to you, I was like, that's a great question. Yeah, how do we, yeah, <laughs> how do we, how do we regain that trust? It's a new year, it's an opportunity to reset, right? The same way we we're resetting financially, our health lifestyle. So what do we do as journalists?
2: I think, you know, we have to be so careful to focus on presenting the facts and accurate context around those facts. Um, I think social media could lead journalists sometimes into expressing opinion. Um, and I think that 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 can be a very dangerous thing, reporters expressing an opinion. Um, I think that we need to stick to showing what the facts are and being very clear that we're being neutral, um, that we have to hold those in political power and those who want to have political power accountable um, and ask the tough questions and call out when they don't answer them and say they're not answering them. Um, I think that, that people are smart, and when they see uh, clear, honest journalism being done, it strikes a chord, and it might take time, and, and it might, uh, you know, take a lot of work. I think that's what journalists can do. Um, I think beyond that, there's more that needs to be done, though. The platforms that are out there, like Twitter and Facebook, have to do a better job on the disinformation and misinformation and fake news stories that are being put out there. Um, they are working on it, but I can tell you at least five to six times a day, I'm contacted by people with some outrageous headline wanting to know why we aren't reporting it, and it's, it's simply false, and it's, it's demonstrably false, and it is uh, someone like the Buffalo News who has quite literally made this headline up to torque public opinion, and then it's being presented as news. So I would encourage people, question what you see in the media. Uh, mainstream media and otherwise, always question it. That's such an important part of democracy. Uh, don't be afraid to ask those questions. When someone you know posts something, just because you trust them doesn't mean that information is right. Uh, and that's one of the ways that misinformation and disinformation gets out, is it tends to come from From people we trust who don't know that what they're presenting is false Um, so really ask questions look the information up for yourself the great thing about the internet is you can find out pretty much anything so you know don't be shy to hop on your phone or your computer if you don't think something sounds right or it sounds really outrageous and have a look to see if it's true for yourself Um, And make your your own decisions about that at the end of the day. And do be aware that there are actors out there um, who have a direct interest in in trying to give you information that isn't true. Um, So really look for that. Stick to that. Know that the mainstream media does have guidelines and accountability when we're hired, when we're fired, uh, for what we present in a way that blogs and other things don't. Uh, But at the end of the day, you have to be the one to collect your information and, and decide what you believe just put on that critical thinking cap and uh, think hard about it, whatever your opinion is at the end of the day.
0: Mercedes, thank you so much for the clear and and honest journalism that you do. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I really appreciate you having me on. And wishing you a very happy 2021. You too. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in, Jimmy Ogunchola on the side. It's a wet day, 1st of January 2021. If you're driving out there, you're listening to us, take it easy, drive carefully, be considerate to other road users. And this hour, we're going to be talking about something. We're moving on to another topic that dominated 2020, you know, social media we all one way or the other found ourselves going down the rabbit hole twitter and you know it became polarizing at some point the topics you were either one you were either on the left or you were on the right the middle got erased at this point we had tiktok the ban of tiktok and other you know platforms emerging and here we are in 2021 we are moving forward and the question that i you know i want to pose to Jesse Miller, who is a social media expert and the founder of Mediated Reality, a friend of the show, a friend of the house, is about our social media habits in 2021, right? So, hello, Jesse. Hello, Jumi. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for taking time out of your January 1st to be with us on the show and talk about how social media will affect our world in 2021. Looking at what happened in 2020, the role it played, we saw a lot of things. We saw, you know, verified accounts, retweeting information that were not true, you know, disinformation, misinformation out there. And we saw flagging of misinformation. Just let's unpack that space. Are we going to be looking at more flagging of misinformation on Twitter and on other social media platforms?
1: Yeah, so we, we saw the responsibility of addressing misinformation on social media really kind of take root in 2020, especially with the rise of COVID-19. And whether it was elections or health information, it, it was really showing a bit of a social responsibility on how Facebook and Twitter were really addressing some of the issues that we know in the academic circles are problematic with social media but it really did take uh, a pandemic to change some of the behavior whether it was around uh, how covid was uh, created versus naturally occurring how vaccinations would occur or when we even saw the president of the united states starting to be flagged about misinformation that was being shared about the election uh, the election and whether or not it was rigged or whether or not it was legitimate Um, that responsibility started to emerge really kind of at the last part of 2020. And just to highlight here, like January 1st, 2020, I mean, I was not only paying attention to what we would treat as everyday regular social media in, in Canada, but when we look at the international conversations that are happening, there's so much more that happens around the world on social media that if people were paying a lot more attention to dialogues that were happening on social media, let's say in China around, let's say, November 2019, we would have gotten a better idea of some of the things that were coming our way. So one of the best things that we're hoping people are doing in 2021 is really diversifying how they collect information on social media and where they make sound decisions.
0: So, President Trump, no doubt, OK, is, the t- is at the top of this list when we talk about information being flagged here and there. The Twitter trend, you see that, in you know, since the elections, Twitter has really been on top of it, you know, to flagging his tweet and saying that this might not be correct. And to the point that some people are even thinking that the moment is out of the office, that his account could get suspended. What do you think about that? Is that a possibility? Well, I-
1: Oh, definitely. And so he he right now has a bit of a pass based on the presidential office. And and to be fair, I don't necessarily think that uh, Twitter should necessarily dive into censoring an elected official. But the reality of it is they've had to make a serious choice when it comes to some of the content he's been sharing. And so they still allow him to have a voice. But underneath every tweet that he puts out there that might have a contrast when it comes to factual information, they've actively made sure that people have a path to go down to understand why it might be misinformation. Now, in that, though, once he loses that protection of the office, we might see him get 24-hour suspensions, which would probably get him all ired up. Uh, but interestingly <laughs> enough, I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, people worried, would he leave the office? He's going to leave the office once Biden is sworn in. But the Biden administration is going to have a unique problem in the sense that they will do things, and they'll always have this shadow commentary, which I think he'll actually try and favor his his audience towards saying that he'll be very critical of the Biden administration, he'll try and use social media to propagate other themes and talk about his own four years as president, which is where we might see actually suspensions come in, because we might see social media platforms actually pivot a little bit to really adapt how former elected officials use the platform.
0: So we saw a lot of, you know, we saw Twitter, of social media coming in and being you know polarizing the American political scene let's bring it home here to Canada and let's talk about a federal election in the making right yeah what role social media will play in that area in that we're talking about the campaigns addressing you know we've seen where uh, um opposition will take to social media to send information that it's not true or to kind of peddle their own side of the story or to drive on their point and their views. So how what what is what's the lesson in this for us in Canada, as we are looking towards maybe a federal election or even provincial elections?
1: Well, well, interestingly enough, in 2019, the Canadian federal election was actually a testing point for whether or not the American election would be able to be robust enough through the social media commentary to really protect from misinformation and disinformation campaigns. So in Canada, we've actually kind of run this path already. But interestingly enough, we're seeing a huge divide in Canadian politics where people who are falling for misinformation campaign, including elected officials. I mean, we saw two Conservative MPs in Canada who were flagged this past year because they were sharing uh, racialized anti-Semitic tropes on social media involving QAnon. And so we've already seen some flagging. Like right now, if an individual is, is susceptible to QAnon, content and they're trying to find or share this content on Facebook or Instagram, it's actually quite hard to find the content. You actually have to go down a variety of paths because the efforts are there. So if Canada goes to a federal election in 2021, which we do kind of potentially see on the horizon, we'll probably see more misinformation campaigns, but we also will see what we saw in the United States, which was people becoming very uh, um, uh, maybe, maybe not trusting of fact checkers themselves. So we already see in the United States where people say, well, this has been fact-checked and it's been debunked and there's no legitimacy to this. But there's this idea that there's this elite umbrella of individuals who are trying to make even factual information have a conspiracy to it. So unfortunately, we have seen some Canadians who are a little bit more, uh, let's say, alt-right, extreme-leaning, uh, starting to believe that. And if we do see an election, we actually might see outside actors try and radicalize some Canadian dialogues to really kind of make Canadians more divided.
0: So come 2021, which we're already in, by the way, we find out, you know, we get through the pandemic, you know, we get through the vaccination with the people who want to get vaccinated or inoculated as the case may be. Are we going to see more people looking to social media for more information about economy, politics and other things?
1: Oh, very much so. And, and I think what's important to recognize here is that it's multi-platform. Uh, we saw at the end of 2019, we saw Jagmeet Singh use uh, uh, Twitch as a live streaming, playing a social uh, video game called Among Us with uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, and, and in that, kind of going to a younger demographic. We also saw uh, politicians who are very active on social media, really kind of engaging this idea of making uh, at-home YouTube videos, going live on Facebook, And interestingly enough, when we see how politicians dive into using it, then we start seeing where people feel a need to amplify their voices and whether it's Uh, media itself, whether it's fringe media, whether it's individuals who have a prominent following, uh, we start to see those alliances. And that's where things become a little bit more divisive. But realistically here with things like COVID-19 being very much a conversation, because even though it's 2021, it hasn't gone away. We still have to deal with the idea of everybody becoming vaccinated, hopefully. um, But making the choices about vaccination and getting good information that fact checking, those those the good science, the like the information that whether you're you're pro or, tro- or, or 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 con to getting a vaccine we have to make sure that there aren't people who are trying to manipulate the information. So that's where government's actually going to have to take a stand to really kind of put in some regulatories and saying, no, this information has to come across in a a healthy way. And at the same time, we have to get people uh, avenues for more media literacy because the amount of individuals that we're seeing in Canada, who are, let's say, 35 and over, who are more prone to falling for misinformation campaigns, we really do need to stop shaming individuals with this and really make sure people get good, educated content that they can then make, Make their own choices with and uh, my personal opinion with it is I, I hope as many people as possible get vaccinated but realistically people have to make their own choices but they should make those choices with good information from reputable sources
0: Jimmy ogunshala in here with you this um, friday afternoon january 1st 2021 and my guest um, is Jesse Miller social media expert and founder of mediated reality so I'll just throw this to you Jesse is TikTok going anywhere?
1: Oh no, TikTok's not going anywhere. In fact, right now, their current uh, counter lawsuit against the Trump administration expires the uh, the day that a, a Biden is sworn in as president. So, within that, uh, you know, the 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 conversation around national security for any social media app and users internationally should be one that we we do we do focus on. But realistically, the Trump administration was very good at making TikTok a villain for no reason whatsoever because it was it's based in China, and so the, the purpose of directing the ire and highlighting that uh, TikTok was a concern for government agency phones, that that was very legitimate. Like, no government employee should be using social media on a device that really does anything involving personalized information or sensitive government information. But at the end of the day, TikTok is a platform just like Facebook. It's just like Instagram, just like Snapchat. And in that, it is very popular with youth. Uh, It is extremely uh, uh, engaging. And at the same time, like all social media, there are concerns with how the platform itself is is collecting data, who has access to that data. But when people uh, very much kind of put this into a geopolitical space and say, well, because it's based in China, I have the same concerns with Facebook being based in the United States.
0: So how do we as social media users, as people have a safe, you know, footprint on social media? There have been viral videos of people, you know, who did something and, boom, it just went that way. And how do we make that space safe? I'm a mom. I'm concerned. I have a 10-year-old. I'll tell you this quick story. My 10-year-old is already asking for a phone because most people in school her age have phones. And my number one scare is the fact that I don't want her to be bullied online because from there, you go into another gaming app, and then you go into a social media app. And, you know, I'm concerned that she might not be prepared for it at this time. So how do we have a safe presence online and, you know, just operate in that safe space?
1: I would say there's obviously a lot of answers to to the concerns, but with children, um, you are putting them in an environment where there's a lot of autonomy, and within that autonomy, they can interact with individuals, whether they be known or unknown. so like any environment, like if we worry about putting our children into school because we're scared of them being bullied, there's an individual, there's a student there's a there's an administration we can talk to about the concerns, and if there are actual instances, you can then you know, break the instances down and really highlight who is responsible for oversight and how can this be mitigated. But on the internet, it's so difficult. So when kids play video games, uh, if they're anonymized in the space, yeah, they could hear language that's not appropriate for the family home, or they could be exposed to messages where somebody's inviting them to have a conversation. The more tools that you give your children to really know that you are a safe place as an adult to talk to them about those concerns and that it's not their fault that somebody has sent them a message, you're really preparing them for really navigating any environment where they might kind of bump into some kind of conflict. But realistically here with social media, it is about need and want. So kids want phones, and some parents say, well, you know, I got tired of hearing this, or I got a new phone, so I just gave it to my child. And, you know, my kids are in the same age range there. So just the concern of um, what does a family environment look like? So one, one family might be split, and you have one parent picking up and one parent dropping off. Maybe a phone is necessary for that. And realistically, it isn't about age, it is about circumstance. But when it comes down to our kids using these devices and putting themselves online, it shouldn't be about them being open and available to everybody. There should be preferred contacts, there should be rules about how information is shared, whether selfies are taken or not. And in that, there is no perfect example of how we conduct this because each kid themselves is different and will not only navigate the the minefield of social media in certain ways, but one kid who we have concerns about may have no issues at all. And a kid who you say, well, that kid's really, you know, good at school. They've got, you know, extracurriculars. They're probably going to be okay online. They might actually have the worst experience of, of the lot. So, As parents, we should always be concerned about the evolution of social media, especially with kids wanting to be on it. But they are the first generation where they were born after all of this was created, which means they're a lot more savvy than the generation prior. And more parents are actually a bit more inclined to understand some of the perils because they've heard the stories. But we really do need to be a safe place for our kids to talk about how they navigate the Internet, no matter the
2: platform.
0: Oh, my goodness. I wish I had more time with you, Jesse. and I'm guessing many people out there. But I know that you can be um, followed on Twitter. Um, Jessica Miller is a great follow for you on Twitter if you want to know more about social media. And um, let me just ask you this. I'm not sure if you can do this in 30 seconds or less. So social gaming, are we going to see more of, you know, the audience of, you know, where we have no audience in the um in the gaming arena and we have more streaming and what are we going to see in 2021?
1: Well, so the thing is, internationally, gaming is huge. And and prior to the pandemic kind of closure, we saw people filling stadiums to watch people play video games. And for some, they might chagrin at that and say, that's not a sport. Anything where you get entertainment value and you can get people participating can be considered a sport. So within that, whether it's curling, lawn bowling, javelin, there are sports out there that obviously get more attention than others. Esports is going to keep growing, but within our confines of, of being at home, things like Among Us, Fortnite, that all became something where parents played a little bit more with their kids, so we're going to see a natural evolution of parents being a bit more open to video games, I think, in 2021.